Lasso. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion and the bandwidth, the dimension, the spectrum of suffering that we especially attend to in this practice. In this phase of practice is the, it's called very literally the suffering of change. So I've referred to it a couple of times, I guess three times so far, uh, but perhaps a little bit of further richness may be added to the understanding. On the face of it, simply the notion that change happens doesn't seem to be very scary, doesn't seem to be dukkha, unsatisfying, bad, painful. Change happens, of course. If we were simply disinterested spectators observing the universe from some kind of a just a spacious realm, observing the whole realm of change taking place in the universe, we just find it probably quite fascinating. But it wouldn't be a source of distress. We'd just say, wow, it certainly is changing. But here we are as sentient beings, not observing the universe from outside, but actually full-fledged participants, card-carrying members, much, uh, with much longer than a lifelong membership. And we're inside it, and we're not only inside it, such that our minds are constantly changing, bodies constantly changing, in the midst of a constantly changing environment. But the real catch, the real, for non-English, native English speakers, the, um, the critical point, meh, the critical point is that in the midst of this world of change, we know very well that some change brings us happiness and some brings us suffering. And that's the way it's always been. And moreover, the change around us is almost entirely out of our control. So when we put these different elements together, every aspect of me, my body, my mind, is always in a state of flux, but it's rising in this fluctuating fashion, independence upon a flux of an essentially infinite universe around me, and it's basically all out of control. And moreover, I really care whether I suffer or whether I find happiness. But that depends on things remaining good and not going bad. It looks like just the reality of change is just a reality of anxiety. I mean, if we could really control things, that would be one thing. But since we can't, and since the change that happens in our bodies, our minds, and of course the environment, our interactions with other people, is so really fundamentally out of our control and does have such an enormous impact on our happiness and on our suffering. The simple awareness of everything being a state of change can be existentially terrifying. And this is cropped up in this little, this little retreat. I don't know about existentially terrifying, maybe that's a bit of an extreme, but people going to meditation and finding changes happening that they've never experienced before. Their senses starting to implode, implode, not hearing things, and, or the, the visual fading out, maybe I'm going blind, or the very sense of I am dissolving, maybe I'm going to disappear. You know, like, we don't know. We don't know. Change is happening. We've not experienced this change before. We're not sure we can control it. And fear is just a very natural response. And that's just in a secure environment, practicing mindfulness of breathing, let alone the broader, broader context. So what to do about this reality, this reality of change, this reality of impermanence? We can view it, of course, from different ways. I'll make, again, a reference to materialism, but I want to make a very clear point that maybe I haven't made so clear in the past. 
When I speak of materialist or even scientific materialist, I'm not simply referring to the scientific community at all. It's absolutely not a one-to-one equation at all. Most scientific materialists are not scientists. And about 40% in America, now it differs from Australia, Europe, and so forth and so on, but in the United States, a poll was done roughly a century ago and found about 40% of practicing scientists believed in God who responded to prayers. And then a century went by and they did another poll and asked the same question and it was almost the same, same percentage. So to equate the scientific community with a whole bunch of scientific materialists is just flat out wrong and most scientific materialists are not scientists. So I adore science and I think scientific materialism is really a toxic way of viewing reality and delusional. That's my opinion. But if one is viewing reality from a materialistic perspective, a scientific materialistic perspective that is based upon scientific inquiry, then that pretty well takes care of the, the reality of change. It's a short-term problem. It's a problem that will go away by itself. It's like somebody, like a doctor, like a, a patient coming to a doctor saying, doctor, I've got the sniffles and I've got a fever and I'm sneezing and I'm, I've got a headache and I feel really crappy and I can't sleep very well. And the doctor said, yeah, we call this a common cold. It'll pass. So, you know, here's a bit of, to treat the symptoms. I can't cure it. But here, this will treat the symptoms a little bit. You can sleep, dope yourself up a little bit at night, you know, get a sedative or whatever. But don't worry, in a week it'll be gone. And that's really the materialist response to the reality of change. It's like a common cold. Don't worry. Just, it'll pass. You'll be dead. And the reality of change will be finished. Because you will achieve, just by dying, the reality of the cessation, the ultimate, absolute, final, and irreversible cessation of suffering and the causes of suffering. And all you have to do is just hang in there. Or don't. Either way, the cure is guaranteed. You won't be there to enjoy it, but you can't have everything. You know. I'm, I have to think that in the minds of really committed materialists, that's got to be in the back of the mind, that however may bleak, bleak things may be, how, how, how unbearable situations may on, be on occasion, and so forth and so on, in the back of the mind there's got to be this notion, but it's okay. This won't go on forever. This will end. The reality of change will end for me. And I'm going to be free. So that way of viewing reality, that way of viewing reality, that death is absolute individual termination, it's a way of viewing reality. And of course, reality means life, including one's own life, one's interactions with the world, other people and so forth. So, for example, the notion of stacking up massive debts is not a really big deal because that's for the next generation to deal with. You know, I'm going to be dead. You know? So it's not a big deal, really. So that view, that way of viewing reality, is inextricable. It's absolutely inextricable from a hedonic orientation to the pursuit of happiness. And that is... For the alleviation of suffering and the pursuit of happiness, it's really all about dealing with the externals. And the externals includes the brain. That's external. And so we see this in education. Look where the money is. Look where the emphasis is. It's entirely, almost entirely, way beyond 99% on hedonic. The release, the freedom from hedonic distress and the pursuit of hedonic happiness. Education is almost entirely 
America, China, Brazil, you name it. Higher education, business, it's all hedonic. Government, hedonic. The media, hedonic. Philanthropy, almost entirely. And philanthropy is a wonderful thing. It's an expression of generosity. And where does it go? Where does more than 99% go? For the reduction of hedonic distress, poverty, lack of education, illness, and so forth. Very, very important. And providing education and greater wealth and prosperity, raise your GDP and so forth. It's all hedonic. All hedonic. You'll hardly ever, I mean, once in a blue moon, you'll see eudaimonia cropping up in the press. But it, there's no money behind it. It's just somebody expressing an opinion. Right? So the materialist way of view is just fused, alloyed, welded with a hedonic sense of priorities, of practices, and it's embedded in, inextricably embedded in a consumer, consumer-driven way of life where more is better, more consumption is better. More consumption, more exploitation is better. And that's the way the world's going. And those three absolutely tied in with each other. So I've never met, it's not to say there aren't any, but I don't believe I've ever met a really, a, a yogi who's devoted months and years to dedicated spiritual practice, meditative practice, really focusing, cultivating genuine happiness while firmly holding to a materialistic worldview. Why would you? I wouldn't. I mean, I'm just speaking personally. If I'm a materialist, I know what I do. I try to do a bit of good in the world and I try to have a good time before I die. And anesthesia that is simply muting the symptoms of suffering sounds like a really good idea. Because keep on just muting it. Keep on subduing it. And you'll be dead after a while. So get as much pleasure as you can. Just suppress the symptoms of suffering. Hang in there until you're dead and then there's nothing to mute anymore because you are muted. You are muted. Somebody use the remote and... You're, you're muted. So there's that. So I think this is a segue to a little absolutely quintessential core dharma. And I think it's probably the first dharma text I was ever taught. It's so long ago, I, I have a little bit hard time remembering, but I think so almost exactly 40 years ago when I was in Switzerland just before heading off to Asia. And a Sakya Lama, he was the first one that was really teaching me dharma in some detail, taught me this text called The Freedom from the Four Attachments. And it starts in this phrase. This all pertains to the reality of change and the suffering of change. I'm not just wandering all over the place. But it starts, Oh, lasso. If one is attached to this life, one is not a Dharma person. Chupa. Chu means Dharma. Chupa means a Dharma person, Dharma practitioner. If one is attached to this life, that is the affairs of this life, the mundane concerns of this life, one is, dharma, one is not a Dharma practitioner. So when we speak of the affairs of this life, the classic Buddhist, Buddhist list, like the eight mundane concerns, but I think in modernity, it kind of boils down to three. I think the three pretty well capture it. And that is, I call them the three jewels of materialism. And it's, it's wealth, it's power, and it's prestige, status, fame. Those three. I think it pretty well sums it up. And to my mind, when I think about this, I mean, just look at the media. What are people striving for? Wealth, I mean, whether it's individuals, whether it's companies, whether it's cultures, nations, and so forth, wealth, more wealth, more wealth, more. No, we need more wealth, and we need more power, and more power, and we need a safe face, and we need to have prestige and status. We need to be up there where the world recognizes us and respects us. 
And whether it's a company, an individual, a family, a state, a nation, a continent, those are pretty much the three jewels that everybody takes refuge in. And it strikes me, too, that they are a type of protection, or at least a feigned protection, from the reality of change. And that is, if you've got your, a lot of wealth, maybe you can buy yourself out of change. When change happens that you don't like, buy yourself out. You know, throw money at it. And maybe you can escape. If you've got a lot of power, if you've got a lot of power, you can dominate your environment. You can put up big walls around your house and barbed wire and security cameras and guards and you can protect yourself from change. You can put up big walls between your, your country and the, na- the adjacent country. Protect yourself. America protecting itself from Mexico and, you know, all over protecting. Put up the walls. Put up the walls. So power can protect you from the reality of change. And status, if you have enough influence, if you have enough power, enough prestige, maybe you can just bully yourself through. And reality of change won't get you. That's the illusion. But here from this classic Sakya text, about a thousand years old or so, if you're attached to this life, you're not a Dharma practitioner. You're not a spiritual person. What does that mean, Dharma practitioner? You're not devoting yourself. You're not making your highest priority the cultivation of genuine happiness for yourself and others. It's kind of simple. It's not a matter about believing in karma or Buddha or Nirvana. Not necessarily. But whether you're a Christian, whether you're a devout Jew, you're a Taoist and so forth, genuine happiness tends to be there. It's there, one way or another. It's there. A Dharma practitioner is one who's prioritized genuine happiness, the cultivation of the causes of genuine happiness over the cultivation of hedonic pleasure and well-being. But if one is a materialist, what else are you going to be attached to? There isn't anything other than this life. What else are you going to be attached to? This is all there is. So, of course, you're going to be attached to this life. If you're a materialist, I don't see how you can be really a Dharma practitioner. You'll have it as an ornamentation or as Alfred North Whitehead said of religion about 90 years ago. He said, religion in this modern world, this materialistic world, has become an ornament for an already comfortable life. So, if you're committed, if you're just really attached to this life, the mundane concerns, the eight mundane concerns, the single-pointed samadhi focus on wealth, power, and prestige, you might want to do a little bit of meditation too. Grease the wheels. Meditation for the sake of, you know, better sex, better employment. Climb the ladder. Meditation gets you climb up the ladder, up the ladder. So there it is. Sedila jena, chubamin. One is fixating on, grasping on, placing the highest priority on the mundane affairs of this life. One is not a Dharma practitioner. One may put on a face, one may fake it, but one is only really fooling oneself in the final analysis. And then to move on a bit more rapidly, because there are four of these, and they're so... Well, each one is like a, a nuclear warhead, blasting types of attachment, different dimensions of attachment. And so here's the second nuclear aphorism. Kamsum lejena, kamsum lejena, now it's gone suddenly a lot deeper. Kamsum means the three realms, the desire realm, the form, the form realm, and the formless realm. If one is attached to these three realms, desire, form, and formless, one doesn't have the spirit of emergence. One doesn't have true renunciation. One doesn't have an authentic motivation. 
because one is still clinging, still grasping. So this is in the realm of samadhi. I mean, of course, the desire realm, anybody can be attached to, we already are. But it's not just by speaking about the desire realm, which is kind of over there in, if you're attached to this life, but even as you go into samadhi and start experiencing the sweetness of samadhi, the serenity, the luminosity, and so forth, you start venturing into that form realm and thinking, whoa, that desire realm sucks. But this one, not this one, this, this is a good dimension of reality. I could hang out here. I could really hang out here. And the formless realm, even beyond that, you know, it's just inconceivable serenity, tranquility. And the sense that you've moved beyond the realm of change an illusory sense but one may have that impression and if one is clinging to that if there's attachment to that then you haven't really an authentic motivation the spirit of emergence ninjung or renunciation to really transcend the entire world of change so here's what here's the might of the shravakayana the pursuit of arhatship nirvana not satisfied here's here's gautama Here's Gautama after achieving sublime samadhi, exploring experientially, not only the desire realm, he had that at home. Nice wife, bouncing baby boy, he had it, he had it made. Left that, explored the form realm and the formless realm with a, within a very short time after leaving home, still not satisfied. So when he left his second samadhi teacher, that was because he had, he had nginjung, this spirit of emergence. It wasn't enough, the form and formless realms, not enough. He was looking for something that was true and complete and irreversible. Liberation set out on that path, first by way of asceticism and then by way of shamatha and vipassana. But now, for Nien Jung, it really, from this perspective, this kind of linear perspective, here I am in samsara, really the realm of change. Because all the three realms of desire, form, and formless, they're all the realm of change. You can be reborn in a formless realm, but after a while, the... That the karma that propelled you well propelled you there fizzles out and you fall back into the former desire realm again. So it's you're still not beyond the realm of change. And so with this Nien Jung, it really is quite clearly it's taking the second dimension of suffering really seriously. The suffering of change and saying there's a way to be free of the suffering of change, and that's to transcend the whole realm of change. Baby and bathwater. No change, no attachment. All of it transcend, right? And go to nirvana and never come back. And nirvana is changeless. If it's not changeless, it's not nirvana. If anybody thinks that the Buddhist notion of nirvana is still in the world of change, boy, do you not know dharma. I mean, you really don't know dharma. Because that is absolutely essential. Nirvana is the immutable, the changeless, the unborn, the unceasing. It is absolutely transcending, has always transcended the realm of change. And that is the core motivation for this foundational, this shravakayana, the Four Noble Truths and so forth. So now it becomes simple. Not easy, but simple. We're in the realm of change. And that's where the suffering is, the anxiety is. How can you not be anxious if you're still stuck in the world of change? And we can't control it. And what's the bandwidth of change? How bad can it get? In the Buddhist view, really bad. That is, all of human existence is considered to be nice. Beyond that is really bad. You know? And so transcend the whole thing, the three realms. That's authentic motivation. That's the spirit of emergence to emerge entirely and irreversibly from the whole domain of change and become 
non-dually immersed in the changeless, nirvana. If you don't have that, you don't have renunciation. So one could stop there. But there are partings from four attachments. We've only done two. And then there's a third one. And now we see, ah, this is Tibetan Buddhism. This is rooted in Indian Buddhism. This is Mayana. And here it is. Rangdurn la jena, chan if one is still attached to one's own self-interest, there's no bodhicitta. There's no bodhicitta. If you're still prioritizing, it doesn't mean just are you selfish. Are arhats selfish? No, they're not selfish, for heaven's sake. It's stupid. But are, if you're still prioritizing, being selfish, being kind of like a jerk. Yeah, you're so selfish. You won't share. You won't do, you know. It's a really crude, you know, it's a colloquial term. All good. But Randra and Lajena, if you're attached to your own self-interest, means something very precise, and that is if you're still prioritizing your well-being over that of others. And then you don't have bodhicitta. That's not the spirit of awakening or the enlightened attitude. I saw a new translation, the enlightened attitude. That is not an enlightened attitude. If you're still seeking your own liberation and seeing everybody else... Good luck, every man for himself. I'll help you if I can, but don't wait up. And there you are, like an arrow, you know, shot from a bow, on your way to liberation. It's not competitive. If you get there, nobody else, nobody else gets there later. You're not pushing anybody else. It's not mean-spirited. It's not selfish like, you know, like that. It's just like, this is it. This is the only way to find liberation. You've got to liberate yourself. I hope you all do. In the meantime, I'm going to do my best. Bye. And then you, you lose the arrow, and there you go, you know. And if that's your attitude, prioritizing your own liberation over that of everyone else's, it's not bodhicitta. But now the whole, that was so simple, so simple, the motivation of a person seeking to become an arhat, it's simple. There's a reality of change, there's a dimension of change, the three realms, and there's nirvana. Go from here to there. Is there some part you didn't understand? You know, it's, it is simple. Go from the realm of change to the realm of changeless and never come back. You won't need to. It's changeless. Yeah. So that was, that's transparent. That's clear. That's linear. Here to there. Don't come back. And now we have this bodhicitta where it's the, the, the vision, the aspiration is so beautifully summed up. In this prayer of Shantideva, I've cited it a couple of times already, I think. The Dalai Lama cites it so frequently. I think it's probably his prominent prayer, his most central prayer. And that is, for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, so long shall I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. Where's the release from change? For as long as space remains, sentient beings remain, so long may I re- I'm going to stay that long. And this is a large universe. The, the modern view with 100 billion galaxies, that's not really larger than the Buddhist w- vision. The Buddhist vision is spectacularly large. And also, but not only in terms of space, but also time. These are comparable. The modern cosmological view of the universe, the Buddhist, I can't say that one's larger than the other, except that cosmology really right now is just look, we're worrying about the Big Bang and whether it fizzles out to a big whimper, just gets colder, 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 and that's the ultimate and final end of the universe. That's what something of a majority of cosmologists think right now, is they're just not finding enough dark matter to pull it back together again. So that's a view. And so, but that means that, that means the universe just dies. 
The, in other words, it's kind of a material... Say, if we personify the universe, the universe just dies. Period. Everything dies. I mean, ultimately, just gets cold. Just gets cold, approaches absolute zero Kelvin, and it never turns back. The, the universe just goes... It's the big whimper. It starts with a big bang, goes out with a big whimper. Dead cold. All life vanished. All consciousness vanished. Gosh, where did they come up with that idea? I know. That's the view of human existence. Now writ large on the universe as a whole. You just get cold. And you fall apart. <laughs> How anthropomorphic. And so, on the other hand, if there's enough dark matter then, and, and people like Einstein thought this was the case, that there would, be enough, there would be enough matter that the universe would wind up oscillating. And then it just goes on forever. And then there are quite a number of cosmologists that think this may be just one, but there may be multiple cosmoses, multiple multiverses, they call them. So while one is expanding, another one is contracting over, over yonder, there's another one and it's in its phase, and then we just have a whole bunch of multiverses. So if you thought that when a 100 billion galaxy universe wasn't large enough, consider that's only maybe one of many. And now, we're, now we've gotten very close to the Buddhist worldview where you have multiverses and they're out of sync and they are expanding and they are contracting and it takes billions of years. But even if your whole universe goes into a big crunch, which is still a death, I mean, everything dies. Everything that has an organic base to it gets incinerated. Um, even if all the inconceivable number of sentient beings in one universe who are embodied all perish when you go into a big crunch, don't worry. Samsara doesn't end. There's another universe over there and everybody just migrates over to another one that's you know, friendlier to life. So there's always a place to migrate to. There's never a shortage of vacancies in samsara. There's always some universe to migrate to if yours become inhospitable. So imagine such a universe, multiverses, expanding and contracting over billions of years, and for as long as space remains, expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting, for as long as sentient beings throughout all the multiverses change, as, as, for as long as they persist, so long may I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. One wants to take a big breath when you hear that. Because that sounds like this person is willing to tolerate change, shall we say, for a very long time. There's no immediacy about, you know, how long are we there yet? You know, not when we're talking about whole cosmic cycles. So now, clearly, from this bodhisattva perspective, the view on change has to be different. For the person seeing our heart, change is the enemy. Change is the enemy. What, how, what else do you call it? Change is the area of fear, of suffering, of anxiety, of uncertainty. And you want to get out of it, get out of the realm of change as soon as possible. Why, why, why tarry? You know, achieve enlightenment, write a book, and get out. You know, you know, why mess around, you know, and then tell everybody, you know, this is how you do it. You see, you see my footprints? Walk there. Gone, you know, out like a light. You know. But the Bodhisattva, willing to linger out of compassion. And then we see the broader vision. It's not to remain unenlightened forever. It's to remain active and present and involved in the world until all, all suffering is vanished. So now the vision, of course, is Buddhahood full enlightenment, this non-abiding nirvana, that is, you're not immersed in the changeless, the unborn, the unceasing. You're not immersed like sentient beings in the world of change and suffering, causes of suffering. 
You're simultaneously present in both, but absorbed in neither. Now it's a very different view of change. And now the possibility, it has to be there. A Buddha is free of suffering, and yet has not disengaged from the world of change. And it's my of view. So suffering can't be, can't be intrinsic to change. Not if a Buddha is still participating in the world of change, and yet not suffering. Then the final one, this is where I'll, where I'll end, and I mentioned this, this final verse before, and I checked it, I checked the Tibetan. It's, Zimba jung tawamin. Zimba jung tawamin. If grasping arises, you don't have the view. You don't have the authentic view. Yang da pitawa. Yang da pitawa. If grasping is still there, you don't have the authentic view. You're not seeing reality as it is. If you're still grasping, you're not seeing reality. You're not viewing reality as it is. Zimba jung tawamin. So this can go, can very easily, so smoothly be interpreted in terms of the Madhyamaka, which is the standard and very, very good interpretation, this zimba, this grasping, this reification, it's the non-lucidity of the dream. It's taking everything in the dream to be absolutely there from its own side. I'm absolutely here from, its, from my side, and that's the way things are. And every, the whole world is chunkified into these reified globs of inherently existent phenomena. And that is saturated by grasping. And that is to view the reality in that way as inauthentic. One does not have the view. So it just brings right out there the view of the middle way, the view of emptiness as a path to liberation. So that would be good. One could stop right there. But let's not. Because the author of the, this text, this quintessential four-line text, the Freedom from the Four Attachments, of course, he, like all, all, really all of the other great practitioners in Tibetan Buddhism, practicing Vajrayana as well. They're all practicing Vajrayana. I, I don't know anyone that wasn't. So let's just shift it over to the topic from this morning of stage of generation. If you're still grasping onto impure appearances, you look at the people around you and say, oh yeah, this one's very nice and this one's nice but a bit neurotic and this one's very sweet. This one's really nasty. I don't like that person at all. And, and I'm a I'm mixed bag, not that great, but could be worse. And then moving right on. And this lock... You know, this lock, what I was talking about this morning, of finding a story that makes sense to us, that satisfies. This is exactly the history of science for the 400 years. I mean, it's the history of humanity. But just very briefly, in 400 years, scientists have been asking physical, quantifiable, and objective questions about the universe. That's what it's really good at. And they're spectacularly good at it. But the questions are physical questions, quantifiable questions, and objective questions. And they're extremely good at it. And we've learned a lot about the physical, objective, and quantifiable world. We have a good story. 13.7 billion years ago, the physical universe started from the Big Bang, and from that point, there's this evolution of physical processes, and out of inanimate physical processes emerge physical organic processes, and out of that emerged the emergent properties of consciousness out of complex configurations of organic processes, and that's the universe. You know, it's a good story. Ask a physical question, you'll get a physical answer. It's a good story. It just doesn't account for consciousness, doesn't account for the origins of life, doesn't account for the origins of the universe, has no place for genuine happiness or meaningful life. But besides that, you know, ain't bad. It's a nice story. And then fundamentalists grasp onto it as the only story that counts. 
and no other story counts because this is the one right one. So it's, it's religious fundamentalism all over again, but now it's just couched in a scientific guise. It's, it's wearing the cloak of science, whereas in fact it's not scientific at all. To, to regard this as the only truth, the only way to view reality, is not scientific. It's actually anti-scientific. So, coming back to this theme, the Vajrayana interpretation of min, if there's grasping, there's no authentic view. If we're grasping onto the ordinary appearances, the impure appearances of how we appear to ourselves, how other people appear to us, how the natural environment appears to us, which is arising in, in depends upon impure karma, mata pele. Well, those are the appearances, can't deny it. I appear to have mental afflictions, I appear to have this, and other people appear, and there we are. That's how things appear. And then if we lock onto them, bringing our habitual propensities, interpret, make a story, and make the world make sense, and then grasp onto it, then that blocks the way. And the Vajrayana says, that's only one story. If you want to view impure appearances coming from karma with impure habitual propensities, that's the story you get. But neither the subject nor the object is inherently existent, therefore neither one is necessary. We don't have to view others with impure vision. We can. It's an old habit. And it works. And we can view ourselves with impure vision. And it works. But of course, it locks us into samsara. And it's not the only way. So if one sees that the way of this impure grasping, this impure vision or perception of self, others, and the environment is not the only way, it's just the samsaric way, and sees the emptiness of, all, of the whole story, that it's not inherently real, it's not objectively, intrinsically real, it's just a story based upon appearances. Seeing its emptiness, the emptiness of the whole story, that it's just appearances, one may say, well, if I, made the, if I constructed the story, I can deconstruct the story and withdraw the story. And then, drawing from your... So there's where the realization of emptiness comes in. And then drawing from your intuitive sense, and some of you, I think, are already experiencing this, not just believing it like a dogma, but intuiting from your own experience, there's a deeper dimension here, something primordial, something deep, something pure ultimate source of intuition, Buddha nature. And if there is that intuition, not that we get through it by empirical evidence that we see with the senses, not with logical argumentation, something Buddha nature affirming itself. Buddha nature affirming itself. Which is beyond logic and beyond mere perception of the coarse mind. Buddha nature affirming itself. Oh yeah. If that arises, if there is that intuitive affirmation, then in that expanse of emptiness where one has deconstructed the story, having seen its emptiness, then out of that emptiness, that emptiness filled with the pure luminosity of Buddha nature, you may then archetypally arise as Vajrasattva, Avalokiteshvara, what have you, arise as a Buddha. And not just having pure vision of yourself, but of everyone in the environment, the environment itself, all thoughts, all sounds, all physical appearances, and view these all now with pure perception. And that's another story. But it's a much more useful story because this story liberates and the impure vision captivates. So that's a possibility. And there's the possibility of recognizing this too is a story. This too is a story. 
one is imagining four arms or two arms and bells and vajras and crowns and ornamentation and mandalas and palaces and so forth and say, but this is a story, isn't it? Isn't it a story? The answer is, yeah, it's a story. And if you grasp onto it, if you reify it, then that also is not the authentic view. If you start reifying this glorious, sublime, divine imagery and sense of identity and then reifying it, then it's turning the medicine into poison and you're right back in the soup. And so if you just cut right through, you break through. Break through coarse mind, break through substrate consciousness, break through rikpa. And then you're viewing reality from the perspective of rikpa. Then there was no grasping. There's no pure vision grasping. There's no impure vision grasping. There's just no grasping. Because it's simply reality knowing itself. Because this pristine awareness is non-dual from the absolute space of phenomena. Non-dual from Dhammadhatu. And so it's reality knowing reality. And there's no grasping. And that is the view. And the final point here, coming back to this phrase, I, I mentioned Dingo Kinsidambuchi. It's so powerful. It's so shocking. So troubling. When this great Dzogchen master commented, I think it was the end of his book, Enlightened Courage, which is his commentary on the seven-point mind training of Atisha. And he said, when a bodhisattva is coming to the culmination of the path, this tenth stage bodhisattva, you're just about ready to end your bodhisattva career and be a Buddha forever. He said, when you're right there on the cusp, like just ready to step over into perfect enlightenment, he says, there's no preference. You have no preference for nirvana over samsara. You're viewing reality from the perspective of rikpa. And as you view the whole spectrum of samsara and you view nirvana, you see them all equally as the play. That is the word, play. It's a terrifying word. A play. The whole of samsara, the whole bandwidth. And we know it's a big bandwidth. And it's often called the ocean of suffering of samsara. The whole bandwidth of samsara and nirvana, all of this as the play of rikpa. The spontaneous effulgence of rikpa. And from the perspective of rikpa, there is no preference for the changeless over the change, nirvana over samsara. There's no preference. It's one taste. And with that vision of the one taste, then you achieve enlightenment, non-abiding enlightenment. So, multiple perspectives, aren't there, on the reality of change, how it relates to suffering. So as we go into the meditation on compassion, after this rather long, but, I don't know, I find it very meaningful. I hope you do. This vision, this multi-perspectival, multi-dimensional vision of what does it mean? What's the significance? How shall we respond to the reality of change? Well, we can come right back to the baseline. And that is, as soon as there's attachment for anything in this world of change, it's a setup. It's a setup. The suffering will come. So, the suffering of change, if we come now back to just classic Buddhism, the suffering of change, when, you, when that's all you're experiencing, when you're not having blatant suffering, and we don't always experience blatant suffering, but when we're having an interval between bouts of blatant, blatant suffering, and there's just what the Buddhists call the suffering of change. What does it feel like, Alan? Couldn't hear. 
No, no, no. Oh, you're wrong. No, when we're in between the interval, in the intervals between blatant suffering, when all that's lingers, blatant suffering is gone. And right now, for the time being, it's dormant. It's not, it's not visible. And all we're experiencing is the suffering of change. What does it feel like? At least not bad. I mean, bliss and happiness is a bit optimistic. But yes, bliss and happiness may be there. Sure, bliss and happiness may be there. You know? Uh, and, or maybe just a good day. Or how are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. It's okay. I'm really doing okay. That's what the suffering of change sounds like. How are you doing? Pretty good. Not bad. How, yourself? That person just said, I'm wallowing in the ocean of the suffering of change. That's the Buddhist translation of. Doing pretty good. How about you? <laughs> or terrific. Fantastic. Just like Amanda was saying. Blissful. I'm doing fabulous. I'm great. How are you? And the Buddhists respond, oh, you're drowning in the ocean of suffering and change, are you? <laughs> Me too. You know? So that's it. When that's all there is, the suffering and change, you can feel anywhere from, okay, really okay. Equanimity. The feeling of equanimity. All the way up to, yippee, bliss, ecstasy. It's great. Samsara is wonderful. I'm winning. I'm winning. And all I have to do is die. I just have to win, 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 and die. <laughs> there's, the, there's the materialistic vision of the good life. Win, 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 die. You know? Good life. And then they'll put up a tombstone and say to you, rest in peace. <laughs> Whoever came up with that slogan had a really great sense of humor. You, know? you got some rotting rotting organic matter down there and it's kind of like look, looking at a, a pile of dog dirt and saying rest in peace the dog dirt's going to say you too it's just decaying matter I mean really somebody had a good sense of humor in any case what a fantasy what a fantasy hola so so in terms of sheer strategy in terms of sheer method I would suggest you start with yourself. Start with yourself. Spirit of renunciation, self-directed compassion. And then extend outwards. Extend outwards. But focusing especially on this, on those who are, as Shantideva says so poignantly, while wishing to be free of suffering, we hasten after the very causes of suffering. And while wishing to find happiness, we destroy the very causes of our happiness as if they were our foes. This is what he's referring to, the suffering of change. That arouses much, much deeper compassion. Much deeper compassion. Much more durable compassion. Compassion with much longer shelf life. And simply seeing another tornado has touched down, another earthquake, another child has died, another area is, is hit by drought. All of those are tragedies. There's no question about it. They're no less a tragedy from the Buddhist worldview. But then there's this, that even when things are well, we are just wandering in a field of delusion. And that brings much deeper compassion. Because it embraces, it embraces those who are temporarily winning with tremendous wealth and tremendous prestige and pretendous power and just feeling so much compassion for them. So much compassion. Because as they're holding on to this, we, we've seen one dictator after another being just going freaking out 
in the Near East, one after another, first Egypt and then another and another and another, freaking out, and dictatorships all over the world. And not just dictatorships, but they tend to, they, that's where the power tends to be so accumulated. And as soon as it's threatened, just freaking out, you know, I'm going to lose control. I'm going I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be subject to the reality of change. No, I am not. No, I am not. All of the people in my country can die to the last man, but I will not allow the reality of change to get to me. Double-fisted, I'm holding on for dear life. So sad. If you think I'm speaking with ridicule, I'm not. So sad. May they be free. May we be free.